Well, Father, what a joy it is to be here today to sing with the brothers, to feast with the brothers, to fellowship with the brothers. Lord, you've called all of us to be here at this moment for this message, and, and I have the privilege of preaching to them. Father, will you animate my words? Holy Spirit, will you help your word to come alive? Will you do a work in each of our hearts as we reflect on the gospel that we proclaim? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in March of 2021, Gallup polling reported that for the first time since they ever took the poll, American membership in houses of worship dropped below 50%. Less than 50% of Americans are members in a house of worship, synagogue, church, otherwise. And what they attribute it to is the rise of the nuns, that more and more people are saying, I have no religious affiliation. And so you would think, you would think that that is an indication that Americans are getting less religious. Well, political theorist Samuel Goldman, he observed this. There exists a constant fixed supply of religious energy. It may show up in different places from time to time, but it cannot ever simply dissipate into nothing. There is a new religion and a new gospel in America. It doesn't have priest, it has activist. It doesn't have revelation, but it has lived experiences. It doesn't have authoritative revelation, it does have science when convenient. And while people may not go to church, it does shape the worldview. Now, this secular gospel, I think, is best understood in comparison with our own gospel, with the biblical gospel. In the biblical gospel, the origin story is this. God created us, and it was good. He made man and woman in his image. We are to reflect his glory, his priorities. We are to serve him faithfully to rule and subdue the earth. The problem is, we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have rebelled against the purpose for which he has created us, and as a result, we are condemned to die to endure the righteous wrath of God. That's the problem. The solution is that in love, God sent his son to live the life you should have lived and die the death you should have died on the cross. On the cross... The righteous wrath of God was placed upon Jesus so that you might be forgiven when you have faith in the risen Lord. And the promise of the gospel is joy. It's joy, right? Joy that we can be set free from our sin. Joy that we can enjoy an eternity with God forever. And a joy that helps us to understand that we can say no to the passing pleasures of this life for the weight of glory and the life to come. That's the joy. That's the biblical gospel. Now, the origin story of the secular gospel is that billions of years ago, life was spontaneously created, and through a series of random chance mutations, human life has developed. 
with no God to tell us what to do, we need to define our own purpose, go on our own journey, and afford other people the opportunity to make the same journey. According to the secular gospel, the problem is that humanity's search for meaning and purpose has been corrupted by oppression. Whether you know it or not, people use their race, heteronormity, cisgendered privileges, gender itself, to marginalize others for their own personal enrichment. And according to the secular gospel, the solution is to pursue an equitable utopia. This means that the oppressed need to surrender their privileges. It also means that we need to overturn oppressive institutions. While they don't believe in personal sin, they certainly believe in systemic sin. All of this is to be mediated through education. The promise of the secular gospel is found in this world alone. With the absence of the afterlife, you don't let promises of future pleasure diminish your pursuit of the pleasure here and now. As a result, you're to have all pleasure, all transcendent, all hope is to be realized in this life, and the most transcendent experience you can have is sex. And to deprive people of that right is cruel. Sex is what identifies you. Freedom to express yourself sexually must be defended at all cost, even if it means killing unborn children. That is the secular gospel. So let me ask you a question. Which is the better gospel? Which is the better gospel? Well, according to Romans 1, 16 through 17, we get an answer. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, for a long time, Paul did not think that this gospel was the better gospel. If anything, it was this message of Jesus being the Messiah that put his nation in danger. If too many people converted to this heretical sect, Roman oppression would continue. He had to purge Israel of heretics so that God would restore them to the golden age. And on that road to Damascus, when he had in his heart, I'm going to annihilate this false religion, he was knocked to the ground. And it was revealed to him that he was kicking against the goads, that he should be worshiping Jesus all along. The scales fell from his eyes, and he had a new view of the gospel. He believed it was a better gospel. And he was unashamed of it. Right? When you're ashamed of something, you want to do what? You want to hide it. You think about that young girl whose face is covered with acne. What does she want to do? She wants to conceal it. But Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. And in fact, in Romans, the argument that he makes throughout the whole book is compared to the old way of looking at God. This is the better gospel. Amen. And he had a compulsion to preach it. And as we go through this text, where there's really the thesis statement of the whole book, we have four reasons why this is a better gospel. 
Number one, the gospel offers salvation. Number two, the gospel is for everyone. Number three, the gospel displays God's faithfulness. And fourth, the gospel is accessible by faith. Now, when Paul opens the book of Romans, he gives a lot of affection to the Roman church. He has a deep desire to visit the Roman church. He wants them to be a model of a gospel community where Jews and Gentiles worship the Lord together. And one of the reasons why he wants to go there is he wants a, a, a stable launching pad so that he can extend the reach of the gospel to Spain. And the reason why is he has a deep love and affection for the gospel. He's not ashamed by it. I mean, he was chased out of Thessalonica. He was pelted with stones in Lystra. He was laughed at in Athens. And yet, he's still preaching the gospel because in his heart of hearts, he believed it was a better gospel. It was a better gospel. And I think as we look at the world around us that is having this secular gospel shoved down its throat, there's a real opportunity for us, right? We should not be ashamed of the gospel. This world tells us you should be ashamed of your gospel. Your gospel is a problem. But when rightly understood, we can go forward with the confidence that we have a better gospel to show a better way in our mission to take this gospel to the world. So why is it a better gospel? Because a gospel offers salvation, point one. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Right? Words have power. I just finished a biography of Winston Churchill. And that man saved the free world with judicious use of his words. He would comfort, console, offer courage, give hope. Rallied the British people to take on an evil enemy across the channel. His equal on the other side was Hitler, who was a fantastic, mesmerizing orator. He worked at his craft, practiced on soldiers, would, would growl, use emotion, and use words. And really, through his speeches and words and the spectacle of his oratory, he led the German people to try to wipe out the Jewish race and led tens of millions of people to die. I mean, words have power. But as powerful as those words are, they're not as powerful as this. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance to the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4. I mean, the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the best news on earth. John Piper likens it to a, a message that a herald would proclaim. Hear ye, hear ye, all rebels, insurgents, dissidents, and protesters against the king. Hear the royal decree. A great day of reckoning is coming. A day of justice and vengeance. But now hear this, all inhabitants of the king's realm. Amnesty is herewith published by the mercy of your sovereign. A price has been paid. All debts may be forgiven. All rebellion absolved. All dishonor pardoned. None is excluded from this offer. 
Lay down the weapons of rebellion, kneel in submission, receive the royal amnesty as a gift of imperial love, swear fealty to your sovereign, and rise, a happy subject of your king. The gospel is the most powerful message on earth. Let me say that again. The gospel is the most powerful message on earth. The gospel can change eternal destiny. The gospel could take a drug-addicted pervert who is an abusive father and turn him into a righteous man of God. Right? This is not a lifeless message. One thing I don't recommend doing, but all pastors should do, is go to a funeral led by a very liberal pastor. It's as if they go through the Hallmark section, pick out all the sympathy cards, and then just read them one by one. I want to throw up. Doris is now an angel in heaven. We'll meet her at the end of the rainbow. Is there any power in that? It's empty, vapid, they know it. But we have the most powerful message on earth, right? You say the message, the Holy Spirit uses the message to supernaturally transform a heart. Now, in contrast with the secular gospel, those, those words don't have power, not in the same way. They can't change a heart. And yet there is a desire to create this equitable utopia. And so how do you create an equitable utopia without a supernatural message to accomplish it, right? You use coercion. In the absence of supernatural power, you use coercion to try to get people on board. You guilt and you shame. I was talking to a young man who was going to a big state university, and he was telling me that in in the middle of a psychology class, The professor singled him out and asked, how does it feel to be an oppressor? And he's kind of looking around, and he realizes that he's the only white male in class. And everyone's looking at him, and he's on the spot. That sure doesn't sound like good news to me, does it? It's divisive. But friends, we have a better gospel. We have a gospel that's not divisive. Point number two, the gospel is for all people. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Two categories of people here. You have the Jews, you have the Greeks. You have the Jews and the Gentiles. And and the Jews were privileged people. It's to the Jew first because they were God's chosen people. God made a covenant with Abraham that through his seed all his nations would be blessed, and that blessing was passed on from generation to generation. And God's design for Israel was to make them a kingdom of priests so that as they minister in Israel, the nations will come to them, be introduced to the great God of Israel, Yahweh, and they would also join them in worship. The problem is the Jews did not like that mission. They thought that being chosen meant that we were better and all the... All the Gentiles had cooties. I think this is exemplified with Jonah, right? God appears to Jonah. 
hey, I want you to go ahead and preach to the Nazis or the Ninevites. It was the same difference for Jonah. And remember what he did? Instead of going east, he went west. But God had his way, made sure he was delivered. He preached the gospel, and, and, and this is what happened. He was disappointed that people were being judged. And this is what God says to Jonah, 4.11. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are now 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? I mean, when you preach the gospel, you're basically saying God's arms are open wide. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, a Jew or a Greek, slave or free, like Mizzou or KU. It doesn't matter what your political affiliation is. It doesn't matter if you worshipped Yahweh all your life, grew up in a Christian home, or were a hardened atheist. It does not matter what your national identity is. The color of your skin is irrelevant. If you believe in Jesus Christ, the gospel is for you. Right? We are inviting everyone to become part of a spiritual family. And God is creating a new family where we have one Father, God the Father, shared by all. And we become brothers and sisters. If you love Jesus, I love you too, right? That's a unifying message. That's something that brings people together. In contrast, the secular gospel is always trying to find new groups that are oppressed. Mix and matching them so that you can prioritize who has it worse. It perpetuates eternal conflict. They're striving for an equitable utopia that everyone knows will never come. Which is the better gospel? Which is the better gospel? Number three, the gospel displays God's faithfulness. Verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now Paul's not ashamed of the gospel because it's a message about his great God. His God is righteous. Now, in Greek usage at the time, to be righteous meant that you were somebody who kept your commitments. In a Jewish context, it talked about keeping your commitment to the law of God. You were always obedient to the law. You kept your commitment to God by doing what he told you to do. So when it comes to God, what does it mean for him to be righteous? Well, he keeps his commitments to himself. He is somebody who always does what he says he will do. One theologian describes God's righteousness this way. It means that God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. God promises to punish sin. Right? Eat from the tree, you will surely die. He can't break that promise. And this means that God will punish sinners. Those 9-11 hijackers were not welcomed into some special utopia because of their act of martyrdom. 
they met God. The pedophile who got away with it all his life will meet God. The members of the lynch mob who evaded justice will meet God. And God will deal with them righteously. But when Paul talks about righteousness here, he doesn't necessarily have judgment in mind. He's talking about God's obligation to act in accordance with his character, to keep his promises. And he made a promise that he intends to keep. And it's interesting when you look at the relationship between righteousness and salvation elsewhere in Scripture. Psalm 143.1, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness answer me in your righteousness. Psalm 143.11, For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness bring my soul out of trouble. Isaiah 46.13, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. And my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Notice the link between God's saving activity and his righteousness. He is faithful to keep his promises. He always makes good on his promises. God is faithful to deliver everyone who believes to the Jew first, right? There is a promise that is intended in that passage. He will deliver the Jews his chosen people. Even though they were unfaithful, committed spiritual adultery, even though they intermixed with pagan nations, even though they have been disciplined, even though they murdered his son, God will be faithful to restore them, even if it cost him his son. Only a righteous God would sacrifice his son to keep his promises. He will swear to his own hurt. And he makes a promise to the Jewish nation, one I think will be realized in Romans 11. We can talk about that later. But here's another promise. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a promise. Right? We live in a naturally suspicious world where there's always a suspicion towards people who make promises. Can they keep them? Well, the good news is The gospel is a demonstration that our righteous God is faithful who will keep every promise to save his people. This means that he is righteous to save you from the consequences and the corruption of sin. God is faithful to save you from the consequence and the corruption of sin. This is argued in Romans. You are saved from the consequence of sin. Romans 3, 23 through 26 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Notice how he saves people in a way that does not violate his righteousness. Isn't that interesting? To be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You know when we're going to hold on to that promise? We're going to close our eyes, breathe our last, stand in the presence of our great God probably kissing the ground. And we're going to hope that Jesus comes 
beside us. They're going to hope that Jesus comes beside you and says, says, Father, he's with me. Well, by all means, go on in. Right? And we trust that because he is faithful. He's faithful. And he's not just faithful to deliver you from the consequence of your sin. He's faithful to deliver you from the corruption of your sin. You see this in Romans 6, 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. God has delivered you from the power of sin. Young man, you don't have to look at porn. Old man, you don't have to be bitter and resentful. We don't have to give in to our anger. We don't have to lose control. You don't have to take that second look. You have been delivered from the corruption of sin. That's good news, isn't it? Through the gospel, we're saved from the consequence and the corruption of sin because God is faithful. And this means that we are saved because he is righteous, not because we are righteous. It means that we're saved because he is faithful, not because we are faithful. Right? The righteousness of God means it was God's faithfulness to save us. That's why it makes no sense to boast in our salvation, because that was the work of God. All of him, none of us, it is a gift that's received by faith. And what that means is that a self-righteous Christian is an oxymoron, isn't it? We have nothing to boast in. We have absolutely nothing to boast in. Now, in contrast, the secular gospel seeks salvation and the creation of an equitable utopia by activism. Consider some of these phrases. It takes all of us. It takes all of us. That means everybody needs to get on board. Try harder. We can do better. Try harder. We can do better. Try harder. We can do better. That's the mantra. And what that means is that there is intense pressure on all of us to confront the holdouts so that we can create this equitable utopia. Neil Rothman is a journalist for Commentary Magazine, and he wrote an interesting book called The New Puritanism. And he's talking about this secular gospel and the demands that it makes on people. That you can't enjoy a football game without being reminded that there's many people who are being oppressed. You can't enjoy Thanksgiving dinner without certain people telling you, well, there's certain people who are being oppressed. There's this new Puritanism that says you can't enjoy life until everybody is. And he gives an interesting example of a 4th of July celebration in the city of Orlando. And, and the city of Orlando issued the, the following statement. A lot of people probably don't want to celebrate in our nation right now, and we can't blame them. When there's so much division, hate, and unrest, why on earth would you want to have a party celebrating any of it? 
I mean, talk about inspirational. <laughs> and Rothman gives this comment. You are instructed in the instruction manuals of the modern New Puritan to engage your relatives and confront them with the evils that surround them so that they can be aware of the extent to which they're benefiting from the horrors that, all, that are all around them. Do more, do better. It takes all of us. Do more, do better. It takes all of us. Which is a better gospel? Finally, the gospel is better because it's accessible by faith. Verse 17. For it is written. I'm sorry. For the, in that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, one thing that's really distinctive about Christianity is, is there's a cultural flexibility. For the Jews... It didn't matter where you live, what culture you're in. You still had to eat kosher, observe the Sabbath. You had to do all these other rules. Uh, for the Islamic world, all the women have to wear a burqa or a hijab, right? There's, there's not a lot of cultural flexibility. Uh, your religion is expressed. It's acquired. The rituals and works and rules. But the Bible teaches that this work is all of God, Right? We don't add anything to it. It's accessible by, by faith, by believing in God. And when he says, it is written, the righteous shall live by faith, he's quoting Habakkuk. Habakkuk 2.4 specifically. And you guys know the story of Habakkuk. Right, Habakkuk was a prophet, and he's informed by God that God is going to punish Israel for their idolatry. Can't argue with that. They're committing idolatry, deserve to be punished. But get this. It's going to be this idolatrous nation who's even worse, the Chaldeans, who are going to be doing the judgment. And Habakkuk is saying, what's the deal? They're going to judge us? What about, what about, what about? And God says, hey, Accept it as an act of faith. Do not capitulate and worship idols to get out of this mess. The righteous are to continue to live by faith in the midst of this. Right? Faith is not a momentary act of intellectual assent. You know, faith is the, the internal conviction of the soul of the greatness of God and the lordship of Jesus Christ. It colors everything that we do. When a couple decides that we're going to believe the Bible and what the Bible says about sexual sin and do it his way on his time, isn't that an act of faith? When you give your money to God's cause and you're told that you're laying up treasure in heaven, every time you give, isn't that an act of faith? Uh, you think about those who are being persecuted for doing what is right, who do share the gospel. They do it as an act of faith. Isaiah 5, 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
Right? Faith is a lifestyle that defines how we live. We always live with the conviction that Jesus is our king. God is our father because of the work of Jesus Christ. In contrast, the secular gospel says the people who are righteous are the oppressed groups. Maybe you can become one if you become transgender or come out of the closet. But they're the righteous ones. And you can have some semblance of clemency if you spend your life being an activist for them. The full benefits aren't offered to you, only to certain people. In contrast, the Bible teaches that if you have faith, the fullness of salvation is given to you. Which is the better gospel? Which is the better gospel? I think we all know the answer, right? Yeah. We know the answer. So do you live like it's the better gospel? Do you live like it? And what does it mean to live like it? I think there's three applications. Number one, you need to engage beyond the culture war. Engage beyond the culture war. Now, I think we live in a culture war. We've always lived in a culture war. I think what's different about this culture war is it's a religious war. The heartfelt conviction of the secular evangelist is that we all have to do better, we all have to change, and they're willing to use the levers of academia, the media, entertainment, military, industry, government, you name it. They're willing to use those levers to basically coerce people to get in line. And, and I think what a lot of Christians do and a lot of people on the other side do is we're trying to wrest away that gun from them, right? The gun of using those powerful institutions. And, and there's a place for that. There's a place for that. But you know what? We have a better gospel and a bigger gun. Right? We have a better gospel and we have a bigger gun. Right? Those institutions can't change hearts, can they? Gospel can. And there's nothing wrong with engaging in that as long as you realize where's the action? What's the mission? We have a bigger gospel. I'm sorry, we have a better gospel and we have a bigger gun. Secondly, embrace the contrast. Embrace the contrast. I mean, this gospel is awful. It's hopeless. It's oppressive. I think that's great. I think that's great. I had a friend who became a Christian during the Jesus movement of the 70s. And every weekend, he would go out to one of those famous Southern California piers, and he would do some contact evangelism. Well, one night when he was on the pier, there was a Satanist on the same pier with his padwan. And this Satanist dressed like a Satanist and acted like a Satanist. In contrast, my friend had a nice beard, long flowing hair, wore a white tunic shirt with bell-bottom sleeves. He looked like Jesus. And so his strategy for the night 
was to allow the Satanist and his Padawan to approach people on the pier, and he would just kind of sit back. Okay, they're done, and then he would approach them. He said it was the best night of witnessing of his entire life. <laughs> right? I mean, I talk to young men who are told over and over again, you're the problem, masculinity is toxic, you need to deny how you were created and fit into this mold. And many of them, many of them will say, screw it all and go white nationalist. Or become eternally subservient. But there is an opportunity to reach young men. God made you with a purpose. He has a great and wonderful calling of you. Come to church, my friend. Come to church. We believe in you, and we believe God has great things for you. You don't have to change anything about you externally. But you know what? There's some real sin. You see, their biggest problem is not that they were born male and white. The biggest problem is that they're looking at porn. That's their problem. The problem is that they have sinned. They're addicted to it, and they don't know any way out. And they need fathers to say, I love you, I believe in you. Come on. We can do this. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? Thirdly is expect a harvest. Expect a harvest. This world wants you to believe that no one is interested in your message. Your message is responsible for patriarchy. Your message is part of the problem. Nobody wants to hear you. But you know what? Under the table, when people aren't looking and they know that nobody's like listening in, there is a curiosity out there. Now, some of you know I get a chance to go skiing in Park City, Utah every other year. How do you manage that, Pastor Dave? Pastor emphasis? <laughs> well, years ago, I discipled and mentored a young man, and his, his life radically changed. He eventually became a very successful businessman, and he remains a loyal and, and generous friend. And so he calls me up and says, hey, I'm having all my friends come with me on the swanky ski trip, and I want you to go and evangelize all of them. <laughs> and then he says the magic words, I will pay your way. It's a business trip. Becky, I got to go ski. It's for the Lord. It's for the Lord. And it's honestly been, I mean, these are all people from the Bay Area, highly educated in elite institutions, doctors, lawyers, CEOs. I mean, and I'm this country pastor from Kansas. But I'm amazed at the spiritual appetite I see among those men. Let me tell you about Jasper. Jasper is a former college water polo player, played on scholarship at the University of Pacific. Came there from the Netherlands. He was a project, is a project manager at a biotech firm. And at the time I uh, met him the first time, he was dating the woman who would eventually become his wife. Now when you think about it, 
there is no chance that Jasper would become a Christian. Number one, he's from the Netherlands, one of the most secular countries on earth. You talk to them about the gospel, they don't even think about life after death. They're, that's just not a part of how they even think. Number two, he works at a biotech firm, very committed to science. Thirdly, he lives in one of the most secular enclaves on this planet. If you've ever been to the Bay Area, it really is militantly secular. Very few Christians in that area. And number fourth, he is dating someone. He had it all. Well, the first time I talked to him about maybe seven years ago, I shared the gospel with him, and at the end of it, his response, and he said it in a very nice way because he's a very nice man, was, I don't like that message. I don't like it. I don't like thinking about people going to hell. I don't like that message. Well, we kept on talking you know, every other year, and three years ago, I, gave, I had a really good conversation with him and so I gave him a copy of Great Gilbert's What is the Gospel? Great book. And then I gave him a MacArthur Study Bible and said, start reading at the Gospel of Matthew. That was three years ago. On the plane ride home, he read What is the Gospel? Thought it was a good book. And that was that. Put the Bible on his nightstand where it remained there for three months unopened. After three months, he thought, you know what? Dave gave me this Bible. My friend paid for it, but I still gave it to him. <laughs> he doesn't know that yet. I might as well start reading it. And so he started to read the Gospels like I told him to. And, and, and as he read it, he had this mental block. He was a man of science. He would read the miracles and just think, come on. And it was very disruptive. He wasn't able to get past those things. And after months of doing that, he thought, you know what? I'm going to read it in the way it was meant to be understood. I'm going to start reading it like it was true. And he did it. And he's, he started loving reading the Bible. And a Christian friend of his kept on feeding him books and articles and podcasts and he was reading and imbibing this for about nine months. And then he had a crisis moment. He always struggled with anxiety. He bought a new house, had a job, was married, the pressures of life got to him, and he had a full-on panic attack in his driveway. And at that moment, he did something that shocked him. He prayed to Jesus Christ. And at that moment... It was like he realized what he did. He became born again. In fact, I'll show you a picture. He's the tall guy, by the way. That's him getting baptized. And, uh, sorry. He sent me this text. I am so glad I found Christ and how he has and continues to change my life. I feel spiritually alive and grateful every day. Right? That's a converted man. All of God, right? All of God. 
But friends, don't let the forces of darkness tell you that no one wants to hear this message. You should not be ashamed of the gospel. In fact, the world should be ashamed of their gospel, right? We have a better gospel. We have a better gospel. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your great gospel. It is good news. And there's a world that needs to hear it. Give us the conviction and the courage to proclaim it, to call people out, to rescue them from the oppression of the evil one. We thank you for just the miracle of salvation and how your spirit is working in so many people. Give us the belief the conviction, and the drive to preach this better gospel. Amen. We're going to sing one more song, then take a break, and then we're going to start a Q&A at 3 o'clock.